Let's pray. come to our final Sunday in the brief four-week series, series called Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace, a study of four key cultural issues in the light of Holy Scripture. And as we've shared during our congregational sharing time, our goal has been uh, to take these issues, these difficult issues that we find ourselves wrangling about in the public square more often than weeping over uh, to take them up yes but as one preacher says to take them all the way up into God and find themselves addressed there so we've taken up gender dysphoria we've taken up abortion we've taken up so-called same-sex marriage and we've taken them up but we've taken them all the way up into the presence of a holy God a God who is light. We do that, and we do it from the Bible, because as Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. He imparts understanding to the simple. It's a smokescreen. I, I hear oftentimes we, uh, people will... Um, avoid difficult conversations because they say, you know, I'm just, I'm just so simple on this one. I think of things so simply. I don't know how to address these issues. And I want to say to them, well, that's why we have the Bible. The Bible is there to make simple people like us wise. So these are issues that in the hands of our increasingly decadent and depraved culture are becoming more progressively enveloped in darkness, each of these. So our focus within this series has been to study these four key cultural issues literally in the light of Holy Scripture, because in the unfolding of God's Word, we have light on the subject. And as if that weren't enough, God doesn't just say things in His Word, He sings them in His Word. The God who made gender and babies and marriage doesn't merely write laws about these things. He writes literature about them. Each week as we've applied ourselves to these confusing cultural flashpoints with the wisdom of this book, we've done so through the lens of poetry. That's what's been the key through each of these Sundays. Ancient verse from both the Old and the New Testament each week. Now why poetry? 
What does poetry possess that other forms of communication lack? Well, as Charles G. Osgood put it in his book, Poetry as a Means of Grace, by the way, written 105 years ago, in the year 1911, the year before my grandmother was born, Charles Osgood wrote the following. Creative literature extends the range of vision, intellectual, moral, spiritual. Creative literature expands the compass of our sympathy. It sharpens our discernment. It corrects our appraisal of all things. Creative literature, especially poetry, is probably our most powerful agent for rousing, sensitizing, and energizing our sense of beauty in all things. Ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. When it comes to addressing gender, sanctity of life, marriage, and the household, which is today's topic, which of us doesn't need extended vision, expanded sympathy, sharpened discernment, and corrected appraisal, and then an energized sense of beauty in all these things? In fact, in view of an election year, With the commencement of the Iowa caucuses tomorrow, I am increasingly concerned that so-called American evangelicals will lack precisely these things. Vision, sympathy, discernment, the ability to appraise our current cultural moment and vote wisely. So which of us can't afford to grow in our appreciation for biblical poetry? Not just poetry, generally speaking, but biblical poetry, where the truth is spoken beautifully. So the title of today's message is, Unless the Lord Builds the House, a Biblical Response to the Secular Household. I know it's the secular parenting on your uh, order of service, and I've changed it to household because this is broader than simply bringing up boys and girls under your roof. You've already heard our final poem for the series, Psalm 127. If you would remember nothing else, here's the big idea today. Here's what you want to take home. The Great Commission rests in the hands of local churches. And local churches are... start over. (laughs) You wouldn't want me to. It's a longer sermon today. Yep. I just got to figure out where I am. The biblical teaching concerning gender, manhood and womanhood, sanctity of human life, 
marriage as the lifelong drama designed by God to reflect the eternal reality of Christ and his church. The truth about each of these issues is every bit as important to a single person as it is to a married person. The points don't change. And yes, even a, a text like today, Psalm 127, dealing with the household. We'll get there in just a minute. Singleness is a good and godly way to live out someone's life in Christ. Just ask Christ. A single man all his days. In fact, Jesus, celibate for 33 years, once proclaimed in Matthew 19, 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Though this is probably not a verse that you've seen on a Christian t-shirt or a coffee cup. We haven't yet set this one to music as a fighter verse. I do believe that the truth here is strangely and unusually powerful, actually. In Matthew 19, 12, Jesus speaks of three sorts of eunuchs. Let's be specific. First, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, meaning babies born without a full complement of genitalia. Second, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. I think he means male court officials in the ancient world who were forcibly castrated in order to serve in the royal court. Maybe Daniel chapter 1 or the book of Esther chapter 1 would be examples. Perhaps today the, the practice of female circumcision is in some ways akin to this. And then Jesus says, thirdly, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus routinely uses graphic language to make a spiritual point. So, tear out your right eye, Matthew 5.29. Cripple yourself so that you're not tempted. Matthew 18, 7 to 9. Well, I missed cut off your right hand. That's Matthew 5.30. Point being, Jesus' words about a third kind of eunuch here do not imply physical self-imposed sterilization. I don't think they do. But in the words of one commentator I read, it does mean that Jesus approves of some of his followers renouncing marriage and sexual activity for the sake of serving Christ's kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. That's clearly what it means. Jesus blesses singleness. He was a single man, after all. Or we could consult another single man, so far as we know, who was never married, the Apostle Paul. Paul writes about singleness in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One has one gift, one of another. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
Later on, 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and following, Paul says to the church, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This language, had we not the apostles' gorgeous portrait of marriage in Ephesians 5, we might conclude that marriage is simply more trouble than it's worth. Paul personally felt like it was for him. And imagine a Christian marriage ceremony, the wedding ceremony, informed by 1 Corinthians 7 alone. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to unite this man and this woman in a sacred bond, which is second best, truth be told. We are gathered here to witness the joining together of this man and this woman to compromise their full devotion to the Lord. In a covenant marriage entering into unparalleled anxiety. Hmm. Did this man have a vision for singleness? Yes, he did. Now, you may say, yeah, but in context, Paul was saying, it says in chapter 7, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, in view of the present distress, I'm recommending this, this sort of self-imposed singleness, in view of the present distress, which probably meant the imminent persecution or maybe active persecution of followers of Christ in the first century. Granted, that's fine. So let me just ask, what about the present or imminent persecutions of Christians in the 21st century? Maybe not where we live today, but soon. Ask our brothers and sisters in Iran or Syria or North Korea, Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia. I believe it might be wise. Now, if you marry, you haven't sinned. Paul will give you that much. You do well if you're married, but if single, you may be doing even better. And you don't hear that from a pulpit like this very often. You may be doing better than the married person in view of the present distress. Singleness is a good, God-given gift. It's the way that we're all going to live in the kingdom. There is neither marriage nor giving in marriage, Jesus says. We will be like the angels. We will be like Jesus. We will be like Paul. We will be a part of the bride of Christ who is our husband. Single men and women among us, let those who are able to receive this, receive it. Now, on to today's text. We have two points, both of them drawn from Psalm 127, both of them totally relevant to those who are married and unmarried. Remembering the big idea today, the Great Commission rests in the hands of local churches. Local churches are built with households. So here's the question, who's building yours? Who's building your household? First point today. Neither children nor adults are qualified to build a house. But the Lord alone is the skilled master builder. Neither children nor adults are qualified to build a house. The Lord alone is the skilled master builder. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2. And as I do, just one comment this morning. 
I feel that we are skimming the surface of this chapter of the Bible, of necessity. Psalm 127 is as many chapters in the Bible. It is an iceberg in the ocean of God's revelation. We're going to study the top piece of it. 90% of this will remain underwater. I want to make two points. I could make 50. Of Solomon, a song of ascents. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's the only thing I'll say about that last verse. I pray that over my kids every night that I tuck them in their bed. God gives sleep to those he loves. And he loves you, evidently, because he sent Jesus for you. Tuck your kids that way into bed. So neither children nor adults are qualified to build a house. Now, if I had it to do all over again, I might adjust the wording here slightly. Clearly, building a household, um, participation in domestic affairs, is not something that we just lay back and let passively happen to us. I will grant that both adults and children are involved. We are not passive participants in the building of a household. However, it is a tragic error in the culture and in the church when children and parents fancy themselves the primary participants in the work. We are not primary, we are secondary. In the business of building a house, children and adults are subordinate and inferior and relatively minor accomplices to the work. And what's so disastrous is when we get this upside down and inside out. It happens equally in the culture and in the church. Biblical counselor Lou Prelio defines what he calls the child-centered home. The child-centered home. Prelio writes, quote, A child-centered home is one in which the child believes and is allowed to behave as though the entire household Parents, siblings, even pets exist for one purpose, to please him. Now, in the track one training for certified biblical counseling, Faith Church Lafayette offers uh, eight leading indicators of a child's, child's in a household. Eight leading indicators. You'll never get all these. You could write down one word if you want for each one. Number one, no consequences. No consequences. That is, the child clearly sins and the parents let him get away with it. Number two, manipulation. Manipulation. A child reacts in anger, clams up, or cries and gets what he wants. Number three, selfishness. Selfishness. The child gets whatever he wants. It's all about the child, not about others. Number four, demanding. The child insists that things be done his way and when he wants it. Fifth, priorities. Priorities. The child becomes more important than the spouse. Let that dig in a little bit. The child becomes more important than the spouse. They are not. Six, responsibilities. A child has no responsibilities. Parents do it all for the child. Seventh, communication. Communication. The child tells the parent what to do as if the child is in charge. Eight, and finally, never offended. 
Parents never do anything to cross the will of their child. Never to offend the child. End quote. That's all from biblical counseling training. Now, this sort of home is sadly common in the broader culture. It's, it's relevant to a group like this, but it's not our besetting sin. If you doubt this, I invite you to watch the Disney Channel for one evening. Pick an evening this week. If you aren't sick to your stomach by the end of the night, something's wrong with your walk with Jesus. I went over this point with my son before we came here to make sure I was on point. Over the last 10 years, our family has observed a parade of increasingly unbiblical and child-centered homes. Hannah Montana, Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, Good Luck Charlie, Austin and Allie, Wizards of Waverly Place, I'm running out of fingers, Jesse, Shake It Up, Dog with a Blog, you can pass on that one. <laughs> Live and Maddie, which is currently on. The adults in these programs are idiots. They are the punchline. And they exist to provide a world for children. And it's disgusting. Now, this sort of home is sadly common in the broader culture. In many ways, the child-centered home is just the default blueprint for the secular household in America. and has been for some time. I'll point you to a viral article by Nicole Dilapando entitled Physician to Parents, You're Doing It Wrong. Anybody see that on Facebook? Millions of hits the past couple of weeks. Physician to Parents, You're Doing It Wrong. Leonard Sachs, Dr. Leonard Sachs, uh, wrote several books. One book called Boys Adrift, another one called Girls on the Edge, and the most recent is The Collapse of Parenting. I commend them to you. I don't think he's a believer, but I commend those books to you. His basic thesis is sound. Children are not in charge. It sounds like a thunderclap across American social media today. Parents my age are going, oh, that way, oh. <laughs> I'm doing it wrong. Sachs is absolutely barking up the right tree, I assure you, at least on one level. But here's the problem. As parents breathlessly consult their mobile devices to figure out what they're doing wrong, they're going to end up committing the opposite error. Sachs is quite strong as it relates to solutions like family meals at the table, limiting screen time, working to deflate the overinflated ego of your child. But he's comparatively weak if you were to take that and apply those very same principles to parents themselves. The result being an unintended and unenviable consequence, the parent-centered home. In the parent-centered home, Paul Tripp defines the parent-centered home as follows, quote, when children fail to live up to our expectations, we find ourselves not grieving for them and fighting for them, but angry at them, fighting against them, and in fact, grieving ourselves and our loss. End quote. Now this is going to be uncomfortable, but you need to hear this. Every young parent especially needs to hear this. 
And if you are a single person who has spiritual children, or you're mentoring and discipling people, this will be relevant for you too. Again, Faith Church Lafayette offers this time nine leading indicators of the parent-centered home. You ready? Number one, pride. The parent is always right or very slow to admit their fault. Pride. Number two, control. Control. Expecting children to obey them, but the parent disobeys authority. Three, hypocrisy. Expecting children to behave one way and justifying one's own behavior, which I guess is a subset of two. Four, busy. Busy. Neglecting to get with each child regularly. Giving this a rest. Making eye contact. Too busy. Fifth, inconsistency. Inconsistency. Enforcing rules and corrections one day, but not the next. Uh, sixth, self-centered. Self-centered. All decisions and choices are totally based on the parent and his or her wishes. Seventh, impatient. Impatient. The idea that I want my child to do what I want right now. Or just the issue of just hurrying them through life. One time I heard John Ordberg at Willow Creek talk about bathing his kids, and he was trying to say, okay, hurry up, just get up, get, get now, now get, uh, get, get dressed, get moving. And he was just moving them, moving them, moving them. Why? What were you doing that was going to be so special? You won't be able to bathe them in a few years. Enjoy that time. Impatient. Uh, eighth, expectations. The child has to be and do and become everything parents expect of them. And ninth, idolatry. Idolatry. Parents making the desires of their heart more important than pleasing God. Now, this sort of home is sadly common in the evangelical church, and it passes for godly parenting. It is not godly parenting. In many ways, the parent-centered home is the default blueprint for conservative Christian households in America and has been for some time. If you doubt this, I just point you to the conviction you feel in your own heart as I read through the nine leading indicators. The subtitle of this sermon is A Biblical Response to the Secular Household, and here's the irony. The child-centered household is not the only kind of secular household. The parent-centered household is equally as secular and incredibly subtle. The opposite error. Brothers and sisters, the Great Commission rests in the hands of local churches, and local churches are built with households. Who's building yours? Unless the Lord builds the house, the, those who labor build it in vain. Three times in this text, vain, 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 vanity. All is vanity. Neither children nor adults are qualified to build a house. The Lord alone is the skilled master builder. Now that may have been convicting. This will be encouraging. Second point today. Children are a blessing, not a burden. And the more of them you parent, the better protected you are. Children are a blessing, not a burden. And the more of them you parent, the better protected you are. When I say the more of them you parent, I don't just mean the individual boys and girls that may be under your roof. I mean the more of them, the more of him I parent, the better protected I will be. Does that make sense? Follow along with me. We finish our poem. Verses 3 to 5. 
Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a blessing, not a burden. And the more of them you parent, the better protected you are. First, you'll note the totally countercultural approach the Bible takes to children. Just their presence in our lives. Not underfoot. Not in the way. Verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Behold the biblical perspective of the company and dignity of children. We are privileged to be in such company. Children are a blessing, not a burden. Now what sort of blessing? What manner of reward? What type of heritage are children? Well, in 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 there, vivid image. Children in the home are like arrows in one's quiver. Why are children like arrows? Um, the reformer John Calvin and the Puritan Matthew Henry, I'll combine them together as they comment. As an archer is armed with a well-furnished bow, so men are defended by their children. It is no small gift for a man with prudence. Children may be directed right to the mark. What's the mark? God's glory and service in their generation. That's your goal, by the way. Amen. No small gift indeed. Children are given to parents for the purpose of being aimed and pointed and directed at the bullseye of Jesus. The gospel. And launch them back. It takes about 18 years. And then let them go. And you'll never get the chance again. I'm half done here. Great responsibility. They remain in our quiver for an all too fleeting season. So launch them toward the target of Christ in the Great Commission. Great Commission rests in the hands of local churches, but local churches are built with households. And then I want to maybe speak to fathers at this point. Fathers, lend me your ears as I counsel you and me from Ephesians 6 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Father's discipleship in the home is built on your shoulders. You lead family worship. You read the Bible with your children. You pray at your children's side. You sing with Family worship should be shot through, I think about, I would get four principles from Deuteronomy 6. With integrity, with flexibility, with constancy and artistry. That's what I think family worship should involve. Reading, praying, singing the Bible should involve integrity, flexibility, constancy and artistry. Lead your little ones to Jesus. Proverbs 22.6 famously says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Um, that verse, we have an entire community group study guide for you this week based on that verse. And the, the beauty of it is we see uh, J.C. Ryle, the former bishop of Liverpool, himself a father of six, unfolding that verse for us and showing us how he raised his children, oftentimes alone because he buried two wives during his life. You will learn much from J.C. Ryle and be encouraged in your parenting efforts. Now, one final application as we conclude, and that would be, put this together, to parenting as discipleship and spiritual mentoring as parenting. Again, singles and marrieds together here. Parenting as discipleship and spiritual mentoring as parenting. Here's what I mean. That the Bible clearly teaches that the primary reason for having children is making them disciples of Jesus. That's why God gives us children. I'm just going to take for granted that point. Um, I want to say and point to, in the form of a closing application, another class of texts, similar in truth but different in application. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Paul says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her children, being so affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Or 1 Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. 2 Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, you then my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Titus 1, 4, to Titus, my true child in the faith. Finally, Philemon 10. I don't often get to quote Philemon. Philemon 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You go, did Paul become a dad in jail? Yes. He led Onesimus to Christ. He preached the gospel in jail, in chains. Should we not preach the gospel here when we are free? Come to Jesus. Allow us to become your parents in the faith. You may not have grown up in a Christian home. I didn't. Let us be your parents. Let me be your dad. Let others be your mothers and fathers here. If you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus, God becomes your father. If you're not a child, if you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God. The universal fatherhood of God is a great error. But those who come to Jesus by grace through faith alone are adopted and become children of God. And you have many parents in the Lord. I cite those examples, of course, because Paul had no biological children. He was a single man. And he had kids everywhere. If you know what I mean. Which means that you do not need to have any children of your own in order to be a remarkable Christian parent. This point, as the last point in the entire series, is obviously not just for married folks, but, but for unmarried folks and for singles and so on. 
It's for every Christ follower. In one sense, anyone can make babies, but only those who seek to lead their little ones to Christ and train them up in the faith and disciple them to true and full discipleship are doing what parents are called to do. And you can do that whether or not you have any biological children. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what it's all about. And when you're involved in that sort of ministry, there's nothing greater than that. Uh, the Apostle John, we've got to mention 3 John 4. 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He was talking about people he discipled. And there's nothing like it. Now, some may walk away from the Lord if you disciple them. Some of your children do, biologically, and some of our children do spiritually. And there's, no, there's, there's almost no greater heartache. It's happened to me. I haven't been doing it very long. There, there are men who have held my daughter in their arms in our, in our kitchen, doted on her, that are now denying Jesus today. It's happened. But I quote Garth Brooks. I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. Our lives are better, I'm going to change this poetry here, left in God's hands. I could have missed the pain, but then I'd have to miss the dance, the dance of discipleship, the dance of parenting. So many will walk away. Well, some will walk away. But according to this verse, many will stick. They will. Those you have mentored and parented will stand round about you, flanking you, defending you. They become a garrison about you. I feel that way about my own father, who's 72 years old today. I love him. I'll defend him. Children are a blessing, not a burden. The more of them you parent, the better protected you are. The Great Commission rests in the hands of local churches. Local churches are built with households. Neither children nor adults are qualified to build a house. The Lord alone is the skilled master builder. Children are a blessing, not a burden. And the more of them you parent, the better protected you are. End of series. Next week, it's end time eyewitness. We have been waiting three months for this. Comparatively speaking, I'm really excited about next Sunday. Our plan is to relaunch into the book of Daniel for a careful study of the back half of this remarkable book of the Bible. For the entire months of February and March of this year, which is essentially the season of Lent, we're going to give ourselves unreservedly and entirely as a congregation to our understanding and application of this ancient apocalyptic end time vision. Our series is called End Time Eyewitness, a study of Daniel 7 to 12. This preaching calendar is available for you in Fellowship Hall. I encourage you to take one and, and pray. Please pray uh, week by week for this series. There's going to be community group study guides that go with each of the weeks. So I urge you not only to be here during this upcoming series, but to pray for the preaching ministry of this church. I do have a powerful sense that God is going to use this series in unexpected ways. Speaking of prayer, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you indeed that you, you wouldn't for a second leave the building of a house to us.
We're just not to be trusted. As we wouldn't trust a child who built a house, so we ought not, Lord, in our hubris as parents, to imagine that we are the skilled master builders. We are not. But Lord, may we call our children, whether they are biological or spiritual or both, may we call them to follow us as we follow Jesus. And only insofar as we follow Jesus. May do as I say, not as I do. Not, not be a category thought for us as parents and disciplers. Thank you for the household. Thank you for the household of God. Lord, use this message. Press this into our lives. In Jesus' name.